Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Ow, what is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this ride, yeah, it's your KC Morning Show, baby! I am just uh, cracking all over the place. I sound like a 12-year-old little boy, but that's okay. I'm a grown-ass man. What are we doing? My name's Hartzell. Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. You know we take back America. Myself and Professor Harvey K. Sorry about yesterday. I had to take Monday off. We had Sporting KC. I was working KCUR, doing some radio. We needed to take a little vocal rest. All right. Doc said, take it easy. I said, I can take it easy, man. Soaking it in, man. Well, we got a show today. Taking back America today. Usually, we take a deep dive into the history, you know, reclaiming the radical history. But it's been a few weeks since me and Professor K had chatted because he's been traveling. So on the show today, we're just kind of shooting the political shit, talking about that bipartisan infrastructure bill. If you even know what that means, then good on you because most folks don't, which is kind of the problem. Yeah. So let's do it. On the show today, Professor K and myself, we take it back America, my friends. My name's Hartzell. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my brother. Professor Harvey K is the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I just have one question for you, Professor K. Is Aaron Rodgers going to be invited to your birthday party? (laughs) Oh, God. You know what? If you had asked me that question... I don't know. Two weeks ago, I would have said, I wish I could. Now, I don't know what disease he might be carrying at any given time. I don't know. And by the way, for those of you who can't see what I see right now, Hartzell is dancing. It's called the victory dance. That's the victory dance, Professor Kate. He's dancing. And I, I want to congratulate you on uh, pulling out a victory against the Green Bay Packers. But let me make it clear. I am a co-owner of the Green Bay Packers. So that compliment came from a co-owner, okay? We can explain that later. Did you put your owner's hat on as you were making that statement, Professor K? Well, as you know, Hartzell, because I sent you a a photograph, I no longer will wear my number 12 cap. I bought a brand new Packers cap today because I am that out. I really have been outraged. And the word disappointed, disgruntled, upset, angry, outraged. I'm leaving out a lot of stuff. My feelings about Aaron Rodgers, I cannot believe it. Everyone thought, you know, that Aaron Rodgers was the smartest quarterback in the NFL. 
even on a, in a popular culture way, this is the guy who loved Jeopardy and, and hosted Jeopardy. Who would have expected he would place his teammates in Jeopardy? Come on. Well, let's go back to your joyfulness. Enjoy your joyfulness before I deconstruct it. A victory is a victory. But I have to tell you, as I think I texted you at some point in the game, it was the question of which team could be shoddier along the way. <laughs> By the way, I say that with a heavy heart because I want you to have a good season because I figured... I figured then we could kick your ass in the Super Bowl or something to that effect. We're basically just setting the stage for a phenomenal Disney movie, and we're on pace. <laughs> now, let me apologize to my Kansas City cousins. Here's the thing. I want them to understand why I talk as I do, why I speak as I do of the Green Bay Packers. Forget the Rogers stuff for the moment. My sports fan, what would you call that? My, my love for sports began actually with baseball when I was a little boy. And my grandfather was very good friends and very close to, back in the 50s, the managers and coaches of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So when I was a little boy, I used to actually go to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and not merely sit on the third base line with my grandfather in the stands. I would get before the game into the dugout with the players as a little, little boy. I met Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder. And, and as my mother would recount, you know, along the way, they could show up at my grandparents' house at any time almost. That's how close. So when the Dodgers left Brooklyn in 57, I think it was, and then the Giants left in 58 from Manhattan, New York Giants, the only thing that I sustained was my hatred of the New York Yankees. I mean, I hated the Yankees. I mean, I really hated the Yankees. If little boys have hatreds, I hated the Yankees. <laughs> so when I was 10, my father and the fathers, they were all World War II veterans the same age, and they said, we're going to take our kids to a football game in Yankee Stadium where the New York Giants played. And my father was not a New York Giants fan either. My father had a, a real affection for the Packers. Well, I wasn't going to root for the Giants. I hated any team that had anything to do with something called Yankee Stadium. So I'm like 10 years old, and I rooted for the Green Bay Packers that day. I really liked Johnny Unitas of the Colts, but the Packers became the, the team. If you would ask me, would you one day end up living in Green Bay, Wisconsin? We've been here 43 years in Green Bay. I could never have imagined but here I came to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I will add that if you are a progressive listening to Hartzell's KC Morning Show, you should be rooting for the Green Bay Packers because we are the only fan-owned team in professional sports. It's a trust, basically, the Green Bay Packers. There's no rich guys who own the Packers. We have a president, not an owner. We have like 300,000 owners. This is the team for progressives and socialists and leftist best folks to root for. In fact, when Colin Kaepernick launched the Take the Knee to the Star Spangled Banner and other players followed suit, I was really pissed. I was really, really outraged that the NFL bowed to Donald Trump and threatened the players as they did with punishments and fines and all of that. I tweeted, especially I was angry that the Packers as a co-owner were bowing to the likes of the NFL leadership and Donald Trump. Well, it went viral, my tweet. Just huge. I got interviewed by various media. The Canadian Broadcasting called to talk about it. And my point was twofold. Number one, how dare these corporate bosses tell their players they don't have freedom of speech, which by the way, unfortunately is the case. Workers do not have freedom of speech in the workplace. And that should have become a big issue. But of course, the corporate media did not want to make that the question. The second thing about it is that if a player... If a player walked out, turned his back, one could imagine it was an insult to the fact. But the players were taking the knee. People kneel when they pray. They're honoring the flag 
actually honoring the flag more maybe than the NFL bosses who always constantly want military jets flying over at the opening of the game. You know, it's, it's phony patriotism. Kaepernick and other players, black and those white members who joined them in solidarity, what they were saying is the flag is being dishonored, right? The flag is being dishonored by the racism that prevails in America. So Rogers, of course, is now this sort of scandalous figure as far as I'm concerned. So I tweeted again that I, as an owner, I was, you know, outraged. Again, I didn't want to say it went viral, but it really took off. I was getting these people saying to me, well, then fire him. Get rid of him. Make Kaepernick your quarterback. As if... <laughs> As if I could do that, like, you know, snap my fingers. You had a little Twitter exchange, or I guess lack of Twitter exchange, with uh, with one Ben Shapiro. In the wake of the Tuesday night elections about a week ago, I tweeted, I'm going to read the exact tweet so we're clear about this. I, Dems are losing Virginia. Lesson, stop nominating Clintonites. Start embracing progressives and social democracy. That's what I tweeted. You know, good response from folks on the left. And next thing I know, I get this message. Oh, man, Harvey couldn't be more right. Please do this, Democrats. And I thought, okay, another leftist. Then I realized it was Ben Shapiro saying, oh, man, Harvey couldn't be more right. Please do this, Democrats. Now, needless to say, I don't follow Ben Shapiro, and Ben Shapiro doesn't follow me. But I thought, oh, fair enough. Hey, Ben, seriously, let's talk about America. I await your invitation, the invitation to your show. I mean, you know, this exchange got not hot between Ben and, and me, but basically people offering commentary on this. Most of the comments were rather critical of Ben Shapiro, in fact, insulting, some of which I didn't bother to look at because they were probably unacceptable for me to repeat in <laughs> polite conversation. But there were also those who came at me and eh, fair enough. So I sent him another note. And I said, Ben, I'm going to follow you for 48 hours so you can send me a direct message to be on your show. And what I said was, seriously, let's talk. I mean, let's talk about America. Let's talk about the promise of America, the kind of stuff that you and I, Hartzell, talk about, right? Let's talk about it. He, he claims to, to know what America is about. I'm willing to contest it. I wasn't looking for a debate. I was looking to inform him how much richer his appreciation of America might be if he embraced the radical story of America. Fair enough, I thought. Well, he never responded at this point, which, by the way, people kept saying he's afraid of you, he's afraid of you. I don't know if he's afraid of me or he just, he just didn't want to spend time doing it. I'm willing to bet he wasn't eager to do it, but nevertheless, there was another guy, Stephen H. Davies at SHD8531 on Twitter who wrote, and I like this, Ben, you seem to be absolutely certain that the Dems lost because they embraced socialism and big spending. Have you considered that it may be because they have not done so? So I tweeted this. So you couldn't bring yourself to engage in a conversation on America with me, Ben Shapiro? For all your talk, I guess you don't care as much as I do about America's historic purpose and promise and how we might redeem and advance it. I'm glad you brought it up. I'll also tell you, in case anyone's interested, my friend Ben Burgess sent me a note. He said, Harvey, I noticed that Ben Shapiro, you know, sort of came at you and then didn't respond to you. So would you come on my show for 15 minutes on Monday night? Talk a little about it. So I'll talk a little about it tonight, too. Here's the reason why that line even works for Ben Shapiro to say is because the Democrats, because they have taken such a centrist right approach, that is why that line can play with Ben Shapiro, because he's now making social democracy a punchline and he's only given that opportunity because the Democrats have done that to themselves. Right. I'm sorry I didn't point that out. Yeah, he, he thinks if the Dems move left, it'll hurt them. I'm telling you, 45 years ago, the Dems were further left 
No, 50 years ago, they were further left. It's when Jimmy Carter moved to the right, as he did in 1978, and all the Democrats ever since followed him to that right conservative. I don't want to call them moderates. They're not moderates at all. They are corporate Dems. They are conservative Dems. They turn their backs on FDR. The greatest moment of the Democratic Party was 1933 and, say, 1965, when the Dems, even at their worst, were further to the left than anything the Dems today represent. So, okay, if the Dems want to redeem America, save the Democratic Party, and guarantee our futures, God damn it, move left. Every poll indicates that Americans want what FDR would be about today, not, not clearly what Manchin and Cinema are about, and definitely more than Pelosi and Schumer are about. I love it when we're on the same page, Professor K, because you inadvertently just set us up for this uh, this intro, my friend, because you know every week, every Tuesday, we, we take back America, my brother, and I want to kick us off with this quote. I heard this on a podcast just a couple days ago from, I know someone you also admire, Adolf Reed, and so he said that we were at a, basically an inflection point, a, a fork in the road where we have, and we've mentioned this on this show before, you've got this reactionary, conservative, really just fascism, and that's that lane. And the only other solution, not an option, not one of many, he says the only option we have to counter that is social democracy. What do you think? Well, let me just say that for many, many years, Adolf Reed and I knew of each other. And just maybe, oh, in the wake of Michael's, Michael Brooks passing, did he and I get to actually get together in a Zoom chat and become friends? And we're pretty much the same age. I mean, he must be maybe two years older than I am, something like that. Maybe more, but I no more than two, I, I think. So uh, and we joked about it, that we were the two old guys in this panel of otherwise young leftists. But Adolf is right. I mean, it, that's what I've been saying, slightly different words, but it really is the case. The old argument was, you know, barbarism or socialism. And what we think about today in America, our choice really does involve either barbarism, which is to say Trump-style, Republican-style, reactionary authoritarianism, uniquely American neo-fascist variety. Even to say that, I feel chilled and horrified at the thought. Or we get this Democratic Party on the right path, or I should say the progressive left path, towards more social democracy. Look, the tragedy began to unfold many years ago. I mean, 45 years ago, the class war against working people was declared. But even within the past year, we saw things that indicated the degree to which the Democratic Party is still occupied by all too many corporate Democrats. It is inconceivable. This is a minor and yet overwhelmingly, uh, you know, sort of prophetic moment when, was it six Democrats in the Senate voted against or blocked a $15 an hour minimum wage? And I forget the number over in the uh, in the House. It's the mind boggles to think that two senators, was it from Delaware, Manchin, Cinema? I mean, this whole crew of people could block $15 an hour minimum wage. How do you look people in the face and say, yeah, I don't think people should make $15 an hour as a wage. And by the way, $50 an hour minimum wage isn't even like social democracy. A living wage is social democracy. I mean, FDR back, and you and I will get into this in weeks ahead. FDR said in 1933, when he signed the National Industrial Recovery Act to fight the depression, he said no company should be allowed to operate in this country that does not pay a living wage. And he said that because he was just signing into law a bill that included the first ever nationally mandated minimum wage in this country. It's astounding. And we could go on from there. How is it possible we don't have Medicare for all? How is it possible that we don't even have the Democrats saying we're going to enact Medicare for all children? 
Am I losing my mind these days that I could see people who call themselves Democrats operating as if they were Republicans from the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s? It's outrageous. So yeah, I mean, we're at that point. Key political fact is this. For 45 years, the Democrats turned their backs on empowering working people protecting the interests and empowering working people. And as a consequence, more and more working class people, and not only white working class, but African-American Latinos in, in ever increasing numbers are voting Republican. Are you worried, though, that we know the path and the path is obviously more social democratic programs? That's the way to go things. But to acknowledge that means that we have to take on and essentially dismantle everything about capitalism to embrace social democracy. They can't be in tandem. Well, actually, have- social democracy and if you like a, a more progressive, a more progressive form of capitalism can coexist. You don't have to nationalize industries to have social democracy. You have to regulate industries. How? Demanding that they pay a living wage, number one. Two, demanding that they recognize their workers' rights to organize and bargain collectively. Are you listening, Amazon? Are you listening the likes of Amazon? Seriously speaking, you guys are living in the Gilded Age, a second Gilded Age. I'm going to tell you that if we continue on this path, we're either going to bow to you, in which case you're going to be subverted over and over again, or literally you will be broken up. Hell, even Josh Hawley wants to break you up. Beware the possibility that Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders, there was a moment where they were, and then Bernie, I think, was so shocked, rightly so, by Josh Hawley's behavior on January 6th. All bets were off on that one. To come back to the question, the fact is that the Democrats are failing not just themselves, They are failing their fellow citizens and the legacy of generations of small d democratic struggles, especially those struggles between the 30s and the New Deal and the 60s and the Great Society, whether we're talking about the empowerment of workers in the 30s or for that matter, the second, if you like, American Revolution or third American Revolution of civil rights in the 1960s. Look, FDR was a social democratic president. A lot of historians disagree with me. I'll stick to my guns. LBJ was not quite the social democratic president, but he was seeking to complete key elements of the New Deal to make sure that it included African-Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities who may well have been excluded by way of excluding folks from certain kinds of laws by way of occupation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we've already talked about how Democrats you know, can find a way to shoot themselves in the foot. And they're also just really bad at PR whenever good things do actually happen. We already have talked about this bipartisan bill on the show before, back when it was still just an idea. Now it's not only a bill, it's a law. We've already talked about how it's not great, but maybe there's some things we can work with. As a progressive, knowing it's not at all what we wanted, in fact, knowing it was mostly shaped by reactionaries, is there anything we can do to work with this? Look, you don't have to be a leftist to appreciate that bridges should not collapse. That's the key thing there. The danger in this bipartisan bill is that apparently it opens the door to increasing number of public-private partnerships, which basically means that capital, the power of capital may literally seek to privatize public infrastructure. Even during the capital P progressive years of the turn of the century, 1900, people fought to make sure that water and electric, you know, power utilities, that they should be controlled by local municipalities. And on a national scale, because that's what we live in an age of globalism, but we also live in an age of national power structures and utilities, power structures as in capital, utilities as in the things we need to maintain communications, run trains, you know, run lights, all that kind of stuff. We know what happens in a blackout. Don't depend on private capital. Reinvest 
in public infrastructure. And then the other bill, which was the you know Build Back Better bill, as they called it, terribly titled. They should have called it the Democracy Bill. He compares himself to FDR. They could have made a nod to FDR. Right. My radio friend, who I do a show with every Friday, Jeff Santos out of Boston, he wanted it to be called the FDR Bill, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Save Democracy, Save America Bill. So here we are. They broke their promise to the progressives. They wouldn't pursue, they wouldn't pass the bipartisan bill until they could both pass in tandem. We'll see what comes of it. And there's a crucial moment in the American story, absolutely crucial moment. The point was, if they had passed these things with flying colors, and here's where Manchin and Cinema and their ilk will be responsible for whatever ensues. The thing we have to get to next is how to get rid of the goddamn filibuster, pass a major Voting Rights Act and to pass the PRO Act to empower workers in the workplace. I mean, this is just the beginning of this struggle and it's getting late. 2022 is just a year away. How do we coalition build when we have nothing that's been really sold to us? There's nothing that's even been really presented. This is where the Democrats have really, really failed us. The Democrats, knowing the problem they faced with Manchin and Cinema, should immediately immediately have organized a roadshow. And the roadshow should have been Bernie, Biden, and one or two members of the squad. They should have launched it in Morgantown, West Virginia, where they love Bernie. And they should have told Manchin, hey, you're invited to this affair, but this is an affair to demand passage of Build Back Better at a $3.5 trillion level. If you can't show up, we'll call you names in public. We will demand that people show up on your front doorsteps as Sololinsky might well have wanted them to, to pour garbage on your front door. I mean, I'm talking about, you pull out all the stops. Then they should go to Arizona. I mean, do the exact same thing. Take it on the road. They knew the Republicans were going to stand firmly against everything Americans want. Remember, the majority of Americans want these kinds of things. That Manchin and Cinema represented the reactionary opposition within the Democratic Party meant you had to call them out. In 1938, and I'll repeat this when we get to FDR in a couple of months, FDR went down to Georgia in 1938 and called out the Talmadge folks. And he said to a vast audience, look, you know, the South needs to be modernized. You can't keep, can't keep living in this feudal age that you're in. And if you believe in feudalism, you believe in fascism. He said it exactly like that. That's FDR. Biden couldn't even bring himself to get excited. He said, workers have the right to organize in down in Bessemer. He should have literally sent his secretary of labor then and there to Bessemer. He should have literally called in Sarah Nelson to stand beside him in the White House making these points. I mean, these Democrats, you could say they don't know how to sell things. I'll tell you something worse. I think it's evidence they don't trust their fellow citizens. They don't want to rouse their fellow citizens to demand what is rightfully theirs. They're afraid of their fellow citizens, which FDR was not. FDR may not have been the radical that he could have become, but the point is he was willing to say to Americans, push me, make us do it. He really meant enable us to do it. Bernie Sanders, when he was running for president, first time for sure. Second time, I think he said the same. Interviewed on CNN by the likes of Anderson Cooper or somebody. Cooper said to him, what are you going to do if Congress opposes it or if the Supreme Court's ready to, you know, to declare it unconstitutional? He said, well, that's when they have to hear the American people outside the window. So what do you think we do next? The Democrats don't trust us. It's going to have to be us forcing the issue. What issue is that? Is it voting rights? Is it climate change? No one seems to be interested to do anything now until, I guess, the midterms. So where do we go next, especially with the filibuster? Look, politics is three-dimensional. One of its, we'll call it politics indoors. 
Biden and his cabinet, and Biden in particular, or Harris, I never know where Harris is. Is she still vice president, by the way? <laughs> have got to figure out how to bring, they've got to learn how to, how to bring the LBJ style indoor politics to bear, where he shoves Manchin up against the wall and says, God, you got to line up with us or you're going to literally screw this nation. Okay. You want to go down in the history books as the man who America? Am I allowed to say that on your podcast? Yeah, you can. Second, there's the politics editors. He's got Biden has got to line up with likes of Sanders and, and he's got to get Schumer and Pelosi. They got to all line up. They've got to go on TV every single day, every single hour, calling on Americans to support these kinds of actions that America cannot be America if it does not restore voting rights as they were empowered to be in 1965. And then he has to say, look, in 1935, the Roosevelt administration enacted the National Labor Relations Act. And along the way, because of Republicans and reactionaries, the National Labor Relations Act was weakened. If we want to be a democratic nation, we have got to create industrial, commercial democracy, that workers have a voice in the workplace and can protect themselves against the greed of capital. That's the kind of stuff. They're not going to do that. Bernie <laughs> would do that. But the other thing is, is that the labor movement has got to stir itself. I know it's been up against the wall for all these years. Well, when you're up against the wall, you got two choices. You either fall back into the wallpaper and disappear, or you literally come out swinging. And the labor movement has got to reach out to what remains of the Black Lives Matter movement. They've got to reach out to other kinds of progressive groups, progressive Democrats of America, Democratic Socialists of America, all across the country. And they've got to say, look, we have got to turn out in a vast, vast movement. When we get to poetry, we will definitely bring Langston Hughes to bear. We have to make America, America again, and undeniably the America that never was, but the America that has been dreamed of. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you got to do, right? All your listeners have to do this. If they're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, they have got to announce to their friends, you must subscribe to the KC Morning Show. I know it sounds like it's one city, but we, we've got to make the KC Morning Show a national show so that when you and I are moving on to Susan B. Anthony, Eugene Debs, a. Philip Randolph, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, Martin Luther King Jr., Walter Ruth. When we get out to these people, everyone remembers who they are. They are Americans, whether they're native born or newly arrived. We are heirs to a promise, a promise that you and I have talked about, the promise proclaimed by Thomas Paine, the Declaration of Independence, the preamble in the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Sentiments, the Gettysburg Address. I mean, there's no remaining silent, no remaining audience-like. We have got to get people listening, talking, and propelling themselves. It's fascinating hearing you talk because, you know, as someone who is a leftist, we don't get accused of being over-patriotic because a lot of folks think that we inherently hate this country and, and whatever that means. I'm listening to you talk. You love America. Absolutely. Absolutely. The American promise, the American promise isn't simply a promise. It propelled a revolution. It propelled the struggles to bring an end to slavery. It propelled the women's struggle for equality. It propelled workers to organize unions and eventually to demand and secure the National Labor Relations Act. Look at every single movement as you and I have been discussing weekly. Every radical worth being called a radical has reached back to the American Revolution, to Thomas Paine, to generations before them, and gained sustenance and, if, if you like, motivation, inspiration, and literally changed America. We don't have slavery anymore. 
women do have the rights, not necessarily as fully as they should, but they do have those rights. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm getting carried away here. Look, I'm telling you, our listeners have got to promote this show. Remember, I'm not getting paid. This is for America. This is not for Harvey K and Hartsville Gray. I wanted you to get that worked up because I want people to know that it is on us to not just correct the narrative. We have to dismantle and create a new one, as Thomas Paine would say. Yeah, maybe that's what he would say in 2021. You know what he said back in 1776? And what was that, Professor K? We have it in our power to begin the world over again, which is both the truest and admittedly difficult statement ever made, but it is the beginning of the modern age. And whether we like it or not, the United States, the American Revolution launched the modern age, which gave rise to small r republicanism, small r democracy, sorry, small d democracy, small s socialism. And it's our job, Professor K, to take back America, reclaiming that radical history, my friend. By the way, I, I haven't said it to you face to face. Congratulations on the lecture series. It was phenomenal. We played all of Sarah's lecture the last two weeks. How cool was that? I could tell you that when she called me comrade and her mentor early in her speech, I thought that's like an award in itself. And then she sang for us. You know what? Can I tell you something? This is funny. This is funny. In the afternoon, we were having lemonade or iced tea and she said something and I said, yeah, you should sing your lecture. Something like that. So then a couple of hours later, we were in the green room before the event and I forgot what I had said that afternoon. And she said to me, Harvey, when's the, what's the last time you've seen a, a musical show, you know, a live musical, you know, Broadway show type of thing? I said, well, you know, I lived in the New York area when I was a kid. I used to see them a lot. My grandparents would take me and my sister. But I don't know. It's been quite a while. I said, no, I said, why? Why do you ask? She goes, I'm just asking. She sang, what, two songs or something like that. You know, I don't think she ever planned specifically to be an air. Well, she explained in her lecture. She wasn't planning on being an airline flight attendant. She actually started out a school teacher, I think. And I have a feeling that her secret ambition was probably to perform on Broadway. She were in regular contact. She is my hope for the labor movement. I want to make that clear to everyone. My hope is that she, you know, that she has it within her and, and gains the resources to maybe run for the next opening when next opportunity to run for president of the AFL-CIO. I told you we were wrapping up, but I'm, I'm going to pause for a second. What do we need to make labor? Oh, I hate. What do we need to do to make labor great again, to make labor unions great again? We need American workers to start demanding their rights in the workplace voting for people who believe in their rights, industrial democracy, if you like. And also we need leaders who are not merely there to service their unions, but to lead their unions and encourage their union members to stand up for their rights. Look, there's been talk off and on, you know, of a general strike. You can't just have a general strike. You have to be prepared. You have to be organized. You have to be mobilized. You may not even be able to do it on a national scale. After World War II, there were general strikes in selected cities. I'm wondering if St. Louis was among those or Kansas City. I don't recall the, the list itself. I'm not pushing that idea. What I am pushing is that the labor movement has got to literally shake off the chill of these last 40 years and once again mobilize a diverse coalition of folks who are ready to redeem the democratic promise. That's all. Let me read a, a statement. I don't know if I've done this with you before. This is something that FDR said June 30th, 1941, when he was, if you like, dedicating what's now the FDR library on the estate where he grew up in Hyde Park, New York, and is the first presidential library. And this is what he said on that occasion. A nation must believe in three things. It must believe in the past. It must believe in the future. It must, above all, believe in the capacity of its own people so to learn from the past that they can gain in judgment in creating their own future. 
was Franklin Roosevelt. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to encourage a belief in the past that it's not just a dead past. It's a past that actually lives in us. We want people to believe in the future. That is, we want people to believe that, that we've not reached the end of history. And finally, we want people to embrace the history which is theirs to make history anew. Professor K, you just dropped all the mics, my friend. Where can folks find you on Twitter? That was fantastic. At Harvey J-K. H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. Ben Shapiro, we're waiting. We're waiting, my friend. My friend, we're waiting. I'll just say that. Harvey K, my brother, I'm so proud of you. Congrats on that award from the labor union. That was so great to see. You deserve the most, my friend. And congrats for you on having beaten the Green Bay Packers. We share a trophy. You know we got Best Local Podcast, and you're a part of this podcast, Professor K. Oh, man. I'm going to put that on my on my resume. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> Professor K, my brother, I'll see you next week. You bet. You bet. I love your heart, so take care. Uh, love you too, brother.
the KC Morning Show.